right. So um, thank you all for joining us for another episode of the MusicCast podcast. We are joined with Dr. Elizabeth Schultz. How are you? I am doing great. How are you both? We're good. Thank you. Just is it still just... fun to hear Dr. Schultz? Uh, is it yeah. weird to hear it now or is it still, is it exciting it's, still? It's exciting and also weird. Like the, the first syllabus I got to use it on was over the summer and seeing the like first batch of emails that came in. Well, first of all, the emails were coming in before I had actually submitted the dissertation because I taught a class after I defended, but before I had submitted the document and I, like seeing the email, like, Ooh, that was kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for those of our audience members listening and they don't know who you are or what's going on with this conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background as a musician, music educator, and where you are currently? Yeah, I am a newly minted PhD grad from the University of Florida. I am currently an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Florida, but before I started my PhD journey, I feel like I'm on the bachelorette or bachelor, whatever, talking about my journey, whatever. Four years later, <laughs> before I started that, I was an elementary band and orchestra teacher for fourth and fifth graders in Arlington, Virginia, which if you're not familiar with Virginia geography is like just outside Washington, D.C. And it's a tiny, tiny little county that I traveled everywhere to because I was traveling to multiple schools. Um, I think my first year I was at two and then at four and then at three, three felt much better than four. <laughs> I've lived that life. I was in five at one point. So I, I feel that pain so, so deeply. Yeah. I mean, that's what, when I got to, I'm sorry, I can go back. I'm from Richmond, Virginia originally, but so I'm familiar with the Virginia stuff, uh, stuff, geography. It's fine. I can speak. Um, <laughs> the getting right in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> taking, <laughs> taking uh, my turn with the forgetting how to how to language. Um, yeah. Grew up in Richmond, Virginia, went to Virginia Tech for undergrad, and they had a five year teacher certification program, which I'm realizing now that I'm in higher ed is very much a unicorn program where I had four full years of undergrad experiences. And then my fifth year was a through the college of education where I did basically student teaching part-time in the fall and then full-time in the spring and taking like a smattering of, of classes smattering meaning like two or three in the fall. And then one in the spring, which is like student teaching seminar, which was really nice. And then I got a master's in clarinet performance from Louisiana State University, go Tigers. And then I taught for for four years up in Arlington and then decided I was really enjoying reading research. And my, <laughs> so my boss in Arlington, I don't know why I'm laughing at this, probably because it was such a weird experience. My boss in Arlington was technically the fine arts coordinator for the entire county. And every time she would come do an observation for me, like the Monday after Thanksgiving break, which why anyone would do an ob like formal observation on that day is beyond me. So my kids were coming back from break and she would every year be like, you know, I feel like your kids are behind. I was like, well, I teach by rote and here's all this research that says that this is actually a good thing. And then she would be like, oh, thanks for informing me. And then after a few years of doing that, I was like, I thought music and research was really boring and lame and very hard to understand. And then the stuff that I was reading, I realized 
was not that. So I eventually started going down like rabbit holes of reading research and then deciding that that was kind of what did it for me is deciding that I wanted to be a person that could contribute to that and also not write research that's like you need a dictionary and encyclopedia to understand <laughs> what is happening. Still, uh, some of the research articles I read, I'm like, I know I'm not an unintelligent person, but I don't know how to, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> That's like me doing my homework every night. I have to like sit there with the paper in front of me and Google over here. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, we got this. <laughs> as much as I hate to admit it in certain subjects that Marissa and I have looked at research and stuff together and we're really talking about what we could do with it. There are times where I get certain articles where it feels like that. And I send them to Marissa in emails and go check out this article it's really cool and then I wait to see what she says about it because I just couldn't <laughs> I couldn't do it. I hate to say that but I do that sometimes I actually didn't know that that's hilarious You're welcome. <laughs> education cheat codes yeah I did that like I mean when I was taking my like history and philosophy class there's some stuff in the philosophy land that I'm still I would read it and then be like did not absorb a word have no idea and I would call one of the um, people in the program with me who was at NYU. And I was like, Hey, you studied with David Elliott. Um, what did he mean when, when he said this? And she was like, uh, I let's talk it out because I don't really know. <laughs> I actually, uh, while we're on this tangent and then we'll ask real questions. Um, we were reading an article by Peter Webster the other day. It was like a, you know, creativity. And, um, we were like, what does he mean by this? And Pete Mitz, Mitz I can't English either. Pete Mixka is our professor. Um, and he was like, I don't know. I would assume this, whatever we come into class next time. And he was like, yeah. So I just like asked, uh, Pete what he thought. And it turns out that he'd like changed his mind. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And he like read us this whole email and I was like, what, what's happening right now? But interesting. Yeah, that's one of the joys of, I think after my first year in my PhD program, I was like, oh, all these like super famous music ed people who would never talk to me, this lowly first year PhD student who has no idea what anything about music ed research is. And then I would like, my first, very first conference was SMTE, which is Society for Music Teacher Education. Yeah, making sure I got the acronym right. And I was like walking around and like looking at name tags, I was like, oh, there goes Colleen Conway and Peter <laughs> Webster. <laughs> like I'm reading all of your stuff in class. And like the entire first year I was like terrified. And then at some point during my second year, I had to send some professor an email and I was like, hi, you don't know me, but Dr. Bill Bauer said that you would be a good person to reach out to for this. And he's my professor in this class. And they're like, oh yeah, what do you need to know? And they would send me tons of stuff. And then I just discovered that music ed professors are just like normal humans who like talking about research. Yeah. Just like, I like reading it. And I was like, oh, okay. So music ed famous people, which is a term coined by me. That means absolutely nothing outside of me. I don't, yeah, whatever. Music ed famous is something I apparently aspire to be. Not really, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like just walking around and I was like, oh, all these people. And now that I know who they are and what their interests are, I'm like, you just are really good at researching in that one thing, but like talking to other people about other things too. So now going to conferences is like an entire, entirely different experience because I know these people are in fact not scary and do not belong on these like islands by themselves where they can just read research all, you know, by their lonesome. Like they actually like to 
do things what <laughs> they spent time reading and writing about. So this question might totally miss the mark. And this is kind of to both of you, because I think Marissa has some similarities in this way um, to Elizabeth. But like, so what is the, what's the sweet spot of what higher level research should be doing? Like, what's the goal of it? Because I, like, we just talked about how there's so much research that you read and you go, I, I don't get it. I don't know why they wrote that like that what would be the point of like to you what is the sweet spot of doing the research and what purpose does it serve once it's done yeah that's not a loaded question at all uh i think it depends on the type of research right like so there's some people that are doing like philosophy is and which is literally just a, a way to pose questions and then leave people with thought processes of like, oh, I wonder about when they're done reading. And then there's stuff that like, for me, my main area is itinerant music teaching. So like that was the area of my dissertation. And I'm realizing as I started digging down that, that there's no research in that area. There's like a little bit in special education, which is kind of sort of helpful, but also not for music teachers. And then a couple of articles that are written in like the uh, string journals and music or whatever the like practitioner journals are where there's no real things and it's from like the early 2000s too so the stuff is like make sure you carry a binder with all the information so for me it's i want to be able to provide research that's actually helpful and has an impact on practicing teachers and i think there's some faculty members that do research for the sake of it staying in higher education and helping make music education programs more effective. So it's geared towards other faculty members, but there's also stuff that's being done that's exclusively to help practicing teachers. And you see, I think a lot in creativity and especially now with all the modern band and popular music, I'm putting popular music in air quotes, which I'm realizing no one will be able to <laughs> see, um, but that popular music area where there's stuff that can actually be used in classrooms. So I, I think it really just depends on the person and what they're trying to do with their research. I think there's a bigger push to putting out research that actually can have an impact in classrooms, but not everyone is doing research for that specific audience. I don't know, Marissa, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would agree with you. It depends like who you're doing it for. And I think the other piece that I've found is like, if you eventually want to impact classrooms on a subject where there's not a lot of research in general, you have to build like multiple studies to get to a point where you can definitively say something at all. So there's also like that building of the research that can take a you know a lifetime's worth of work to to be um but I know like one of the struggles for me leaving the classroom was like well I'm just gonna go to this ivory tower world now and I have to like put out certain kinds of articles if I want to be tenured someday and I have to have so many cv line like you know all of that I think factors into it as well um but also like finding professors who like want to affect the practitioner is also it, it can be tricky especially at certain institutions so I think just like also making friends with for lack of a better term like people who have interests like you and you 
like vibe with and learning a lot from the people who are choosing a different path, but maybe that will be the answer to a question one day and accessing their bank of knowledge and keeping those connections open can be just as useful so that you can apply it somewhere else in the future. So um, I don't know if there is a sweet spot, I guess, um, because it really depends, yeah, who you're doing it for. But. Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about music education research that I've found over the course of my PhD is that it you have to find a sweet spot for you as a person. Like, what is your area of interest? Who is the aim or who is the group that you're trying to help? And how do you get that information out there? So for me, when I'm doing stuff with itinerant teaching, like you were saying, Marissa, I do need to build up because there's not really anything there. At some point, I do need to build up enough that when I go and publish that I'm not just citing like special education research because no music ed article or journal is going to be like, yeah, cool. It's great that all your resources are in a completely different field. <laughs> but when I'm doing stuff for, I do a lot of uh, research too in special education and how to be more inclusive in the classroom. A lot of that stuff is me reading the research that exists and then doing conference presentations like at FMEA, I'm going to be presenting on like small inclusive changes that you can make in your classroom to make it more inclusive and accessible for everyone. And that's something that doesn't necessarily need that I get to be a middleman, almost like a, hey, want to know more about how to make your classroom a better place for, for people that may not be able to participate otherwise? Let's change your font size and <laughs> do some simple things in that way. So, and, and I think you'll see, I think Colleen Conway has made a career out of this, but her research is literally taking education research and seeing, I wonder what would happen if I just add music in the title and then just doing that. So she sees stuff that exists and that's helpful in the education community and then just puts it into music ed land. It is fascinating. I don't know if I've ever thought of it in that way of like researching something that in a world where with research citing sources is so important to go well, there aren't really sources on this. Like, I don't know if I've ever fully wrapped my head around what that would be like. Yeah, literally me trying to write the entire literature review for my dissertation was, there were five-ish music ed articles, maybe. And then everything else was from identity research and professional development and special education, which is kind of sort of related, but I was like, leaving breadcrumbs so that my readers could get all the way back to, okay, we know where this is coming from and where it's going to now, because there's nothing else really that exists, which is really cool. And also very frustrating. <laughs> Flash to five years in the future where Elizabeth has been publishing under pseudonyms and now she's starting <laughs> to like Dr. Uh, Smith did this. So this is just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I made it a goal once I started, I started doing this research on itinerant teaching my like spring of my first year in my PhD program because Dr. Bill Bauer was like, hey, um, you seem to be really passionate about this. You should try researching in this in this area. I was like, well, I was an itinerant teacher and I kind of wanted to bang my head through a wall on most days because of some of the ridiculousness, like showing up for a formal observation, come to find out the entire fourth grade is in Jamestown for the day. And no one told me. So I'm just sitting there with my administrator and I'm like, guess you need to come back. 
And he was like, you should do research in that area. It's obviously something that is meaningful to you. And it, there's not really anything there. And I was like, I don't know. I feel like it's um, a little too soon. And he's like, we'll just try it for a semester and see what happens. And I realized it was kind of like therapy for me to talk to other people about their experiences and those same kinds of positions, because it showed me that I wasn't the only person struggling with how do you balance your day when you're spending your lunchtime in your car and you only have, you know, X amount of time in a school per day. And then you go back a week later and hope that nothing has hit the fan in your absence, which is super frustrating. But by doing that research, I get to then let others know that, oh, by the way, you actually are not the only person on the planet that's showed up to a school and had it, you know, I think there was one day where I showed up and it, uh, the power had gone out. So they were over at the high school, but no one told me. So I just pulled up to a dark school with no sound. And for an elementary school, I was like, something, something has gone awry. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't check my email until I got to the school and I was like, what is happening? And come to find out they're over at one of the other high schools. It's like, oh, that's fair. Well, let's kind of follow this line. Can you talk to us a little bit about this research to practice blog series you're doing with F flat and kind of the purpose of um, taking your information to that particular platform? And we'll start there and kind of follow. Yeah, I think so. My first semester in my PhD program, I went to SMTE conference and I didn't so I knew what being in like a music education professor I thought was, but I realized that I didn't know a lot other than what I had seen of my own faculty members when I was in undergrad. So I went to the music teacher educators ASPA, which is like a, basically a PD where you all produce research about the same kind of thing, thinking that, well, I don't really know what a music teacher educator does. So if I sit in on this ASPA meeting, maybe I can just like low key figure out what I'm supposed to be doing with the rest of my life in this career. And they do a lot of similar research. And one of the things they were talking about is that it seems like there's this like weird disconnect between um, research that's being conducted and practicing teachers. And then in my head too, I was like, well, for me, it was a huge leap of faith to even just quit my classroom teaching job, which was very comfortable. I was making decent money and take on this assistantship where I was making significantly less money over the course of what I thought was three years turned out to be four years of my PhD program. I was like, it seems like for to get more people into higher ed so that we can get more diversity within the field of music education, it seems like it would be a good idea to take some of this research and put it into a way that practicing teachers can understand and use some of that information. And then by making it more accessible, maybe those that were like me and reading this research and finding that they're really interested in it will then go read the actual article and hopefully get interested in it that way. So for me, it's mostly just like, there's so much music education research that can have an impact on how teachers do things in their classrooms. And most research is not conducted in a vacuum to like not help people in some capacity. Like there's questions that people want answered. So when I (laughs) proposed the, the blog to Sarah, I was like, Hey, I feel like it would be a really cool opportunity to take 
research that's published that exists and kind of give a like, so what, like, why do people need to know about this and how can it actually help? But also providing a platform to people like you, Marissa, who's in the beginning of their PhD, who thinks that maybe the research that they're doing is not quite good enough to be published anywhere, but you do spend significant amounts of time doing all of these classroom research assignments. And then like you just what present on it at a conference, turn it into a poster and then say sayonara and never to see it again. Like, it seems like it would be worth it to do something with that and make it more accessible, particularly because people in PhD programs and graduate studies who are doing research, they're closer to being in the classroom than someone who's been in higher ed for 30 plus years were. So it seems like it would be a good, good way to kind of bridge that gap. And yeah, recruiting into higher ed would be nice, but also just, it would be great to make sure that the research that's being conducted doesn't just stay within people who have access to reading all these research journals because NAFME memberships are expensive. And I know I would get the music educators journal delivered to my house and I would like flip through and be like, yeah, cool. Bye. <laughs> like I'm moving right along. And there's so much stuff in there that had I taken the time to look through probably would have impacted how I did things in my classroom. So really for me, it's just like a, how can I take the things that exist that people have spent time on and give it in a way that people that are doing the thing can actually use. I have a bunch of questions. Some of it's just for my curiosity and some of it is potentially useful, but um, in, sorry, in terms of numbers, I'm a mess. In terms of numbers in higher education, do we, do we need more music ed professors or are you just talking about the diversity of who ends up in? Mostly diversity. Like when I showed up to my first conference, I was looking around, I was like, there's a lot of white men here who are <laughs> yeah. above the age of 60, which not to say that they're not doing good work because they are, but there's not a whole lot. Like I think SMTE or NAFME, the big research conference in the spring, there's like a whole section or a session on like uh, new moms and parental leave and the impacts of that. And there was like a handful of people when they were trying to find, you know, I would assume participants to talk in that thing that were like, yeah, it's impacted me because not everyone is female in that profession. And then you look for other diversity and there's just not a whole lot. And I think that is not to say problematic, but I think you have better ideas when you have more people there. Like the conversations are richer and the, the topics of research are more interesting. And you have just with more background and experience and lived experiences, you just wind up with a richer plethora of research and things to pull from. Yeah. More voices. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'm curious about, so there's all these journals, right? JRME, MEJ, whatever there's, I mean, ASTA, you could, there's so many of them that people could pull from, but like, there's very kind of defined lines as to like, well, this is the researchy higher ed one. And this one is the one for practicing teachers. And like, maybe you should publish in that one, but maybe you should try for this one. Like there's all of these kind of things that um, create boundaries in higher ed, which then create boundaries to getting information to practicing teachers. 
because there's so many different avenues of where you can publish and people see this one as the research you want or this one as um, one you should or shouldn't publish in. And I don't know if she's going from a reader perspective or if you're looking to publish, how do you, how do you navigate, um, like, how do you navigate which you should pay and subscribe to if you are on a limited budget and how should you decide where to publish if you are an aspiring researcher? Yeah. I think something that a lot of people maybe don't realize is that with your NAFI membership, you actually have access to all of the journals. So even though the most common one, that you, I mean, everyone gets that teaching music delivered to their doors and that's mm -hmm. not a peer reviewed journal. So putting something in there is like, I had this idea, I wrote this up and I sent it in and someone goes, Hey, I think that'd be helpful. So they just publish it as opposed to like uh, all of the other acronym journals that exist where it, the peer review makes it harder and harder to get in to as a, as an author, which I'm still a little afraid to hit submit when it comes to, to writing journals for some of those. But I think as a, if you're trying to find things that are applicable as a reader, then like music educators journal will have some information because a lot of times the people that are writing those articles um, reference research, even if it's not explicit within that. And then the update journal will have, I mean, the whole premise of that is to make research applicable and give per, um, ways to actually use whatever that author found. So like if I were to write, do a research study and put it into an update article, the whole premise is that the very end, it has to have, how do practicing teachers actually use this in their classrooms? Like you can't submit to that article or that journal rather, if there's no like practical application component to it. So I think if you as a teacher are trying to find a journal to look at, I think updates probably the most helpful as far as if you're interested in finding research, but don't necessarily know how to read an entire research article yet, updates the place I think that would be most helpful. But when it comes to you as an author trying to find a, a house for what you've done, I think that can be a challenge. And it's something that you just have to read the guidelines for what each of the, the journals are looking for. But I think if you're doing something with the intent of helping practicing teachers do something with what you found, something like update or music educators journal um, would be most helpful for those. And there's also like a general education. They just changed the name of it. It used to be something else, but it's a journal of general music education, I think is what they renamed it. And there's, same thing with like band and orchestra land. There's some journals that are meant to be research only. And then there's some that are meant to be applications of that research and practice. This is potentially a two-part question, but with, with there being as many avenues as there are with journals and like where you could go and what you look for, do you think we're at a point where maybe there's a, there's a better way or a better form of media to present the information. Like when teachers have limited amount of time is like podcasting or YouTube videos or anything like that, uh, something that should or potentially can be explored to make the stuff a little more accessible for people. Yeah, I was actually, we had a conversation about that in one of my um, last doctoral classes, like the seminar for music teacher education. Like the goal is not to do all this research and then just have it exist in the void of higher education that no teacher is going to actually see. And I think 
in order to be relevant for lack of a better word and not just stay within academia exclusively that you do need to find a way to get that information out there and I think NAFME's trying to do they're trying to do these like webinars and blogs and I think um, that can be really helpful too that the research that we do there's like an ethics clause right so when you're doing research you have to follow like the scientific method so you can't just take the same research article and present the exact same thing at a bunch of different conferences. And you can't just take a book chapter and put it in as many different places as you want. But there's nothing to say that you can't distill that information down and present at, like for me, I'm presenting part of my dissertation at FMEA because I think the teachers that are in those positions need access to some of the resources and, and ideas that I'm I have found across the people that I've talked to that may be helpful. And webinars and podcasts, I think are all really helpful. And there's even um, like a YouTube conversation and like what you all are doing here where you just have conversations with a bunch of different people and a bunch of different ideas and be able to share resources and things like that. And I think anything that people in higher education can do to get the research into the hands of people that can actually use it is a step in the right direction. I think for so long, practicing teachers didn't really have access to that. And unless they were to pay for the NAFME membership and then also read the research journals. But like when I was teaching, I didn't have time to sit down and read stuff. And the first word that I find that I have to look up, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> I don't have time for this anymore. Well, and I think like, I mean, we talk about this a lot with a bunch of different guests, but I do think sometimes a lot of the the nerve wracking stipulation of people when they're reading different things or different elements that they want to practice is fear or like that loss of control in their classroom when they're not sure. And there's something to be said about um, whether it be a more of a conversational thing, like, like you said, where it's, it just feels like people being actual people talking about something rather than reading um, a long form research or seeing a video of just watching like moments of something be um, implemented in an actual classroom. And I know I say that, I know the logistics of like filming a part of a class and put, just putting it up is huge, especially when you're talking about children in the room and things like that. But just taking a little bit of that guesswork out, I feel like is so, is so helpful because I've read so many things and go, that's awesome. And this sounds great. But the moment I hit a speed bump that I didn't read about, I'm going to have no idea where to go. And it's one thing to say, nah, let's just try it. If I hit the speed bump, we'll figure it out and it won't be a big deal. But that's disconcerting for a lot of people sometimes. Yeah, I think particularly with like creativity things in the classroom, like I think uh, actually Marissa, her, um, your, I said on your like master's thesis. Oh my uh, God, you defense. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you were talking about a lot of that stuff there where actually, Kevin, I think that was your band that she <laughs> was Burt Macklin's yep. band not my band oh not your band so <laughs> but like some of that uh creativity stuff in the classroom I think is something that a lot of teachers giving up that amount of control and then hoping that at the end of the day it's worth it is really hard especially when as a teacher you have to go down in Florida we call it MPA but it's like state assessment festival whatever you want to call it in whatever state you're in but I think giving up time when you're preparing for that to do this composition or transcription or arranging or whatever activity 
can seem like a complete waste of time, but what you're actually working on is how well students can read music and write music and do they understand key signatures and do they understand melody and do they understand? So you're working on a bunch of those same ideas and you're reinforcing all those skills that you want to reinforce before they do a sight reading. But it's really scary to give up that level of control, especially when you know your job could potentially depend on you doing well at that assessment event. So it, that's one of the things too. Like, yeah, once you hit a speed bump the first time, you're like, this is out, this is ridiculous, I'm out. And then the amount of chaos that you have to be okay with, particularly in a large ensemble, you look around and if your principal were to walk in while you're doing this like small group where they learn by ear a pop tune thing, no principal is going to walk in and be like, yeah, seems like you have control of your classroom because if you're looking at the whole in a snapshot, yeah, it does not look like you have control of your classroom. But if you look at the learning that's taking place within those small groups and the communication, it's absolutely worth it. But there are a lot of teachers who are like, oh, I don't have time for that. My principal would hate me. It would be way too loud. I don't have the space or insert whatever excuse and, and thing that you need to go there, go there. But I think it, it can be really terrifying. And there's so much research that's out there that talks about that like connection point of how do you tell your principal and prepare them for whatever it is that you're about to do that may sound like a dumpster fire. <laughs> but well, and hypothetically, <laughs> I had, hypothetically, had I been around when Marissa was doing her uh, her her master's uh, work, the it's not just the chaos in the room that I think is really disconcerting. There's this like it's kind of fun in retrospect. It wasn't when it initially happened, but there's this game of chicken that happens with the kids when you ask them to write the stuff because they go, "Well, can you just give it to us?" And you go, "No, I want you to do it." And they're like, "Can." but I don't, I don't want to do it. And you go, well, we're not doing anything until you do it. And then everyone just sits there and it's one of those where it's like, he'll give up before we give up. Everyone just chill. And they just kind of sit. And it's like this uncomfortable period of time where it feels like nothing's happening. No one goes, it's our music now. And they just start writing it. And that's, it, it was, it was uncomfortable. Like that was a stressor. Yeah. There's a really great Ted talk about that there's a ted talk for everything but the um the guy that's like talking through this like dance party up on a hill at a, a concert and one person dancing by themselves looks like they have lost their mind but it takes the first follower to get up and follow what they're doing and start dancing where things start to to make sense and yeah i mean for me i did the mozart clarinet concerto which everybody does at some point in their collegiate career if they're a clarinet player and I got to the part where you're supposed to write your own cadenza and I was like um I'm a clarinet player I read the music that is written down in front of me and he was like well you know and back when this piece was written the performer would just kind of do their own thing and I was like that's cool I'm gonna hand write this in my music like if I pull up my my sheet music now for that piece it I literally have handwritten in the exact same thing because I was too afraid that I would make a mistake but the whole beauty of improvisation is that there aren't mistakes it's really just learning opportunities and I think the more I've been teaching and doing research the more I've found that 
you learn more from making mistakes than you would learn from just following what's on the page. Like I hear people that are just, they learn by ear and play really well. Like my older sister is a violin player. I grew up going to all of her Suzuki lessons and she's got this fantastic gift that I'm just super jealous of. She would hear one tune one time and then just be able to go on her instrument or on the mandolin. And I was like, how do you do that? And she's like, I don't know. I just do like, I don't know how to eliminate the fear factor from just starting. And I think the only way to do that is just to have someone tell you that it's okay to make mistakes and it's going to not sound great the first time you do it, but the more you try, the better it gets. And there's a whole bunch of research to support that, but it's really hard to take that initial leap of faith and just try something. And if it crashes and burns, then it crashed and burned. And that's a lesson learned that you can take with you into the next time you do it. Have you ever, this is kind of illustrating uh, the point that you had initially just made, but have you ever seen the YouTube channel Improv Everywhere? Yeah. Did you see the the dance party one? Because this is... No. So there's... Um, I'll try and find it and send it in the chat before we end our thing. But it's basically the idea of the the person on a hill or people being willing and they put a little, like a button on the ground and it says stand here for a dance party and when someone stands on it there's two paid dancers that just walk around the corner with a boombox and start dancing and you just watch this entire park become a dance party just because two people were committed to it and it's it's fascinating in that way um and it is it's that it's the plunge that's really hard but um yeah that is research in and of itself i'm sure how how to get them to do that yeah. And it's really hard as a teacher too. I mean, the whole premise of teaching, I mean, even when I was in school, it was like the person that's in front, in front of the classroom is the person that has all of the knowledge and everyone else just like gets to absorb it. And by the end of the day, you've like learned all of these wonderful things. But what we know, what actually helps people to learn is to have students have choice and they're more engaged when they're interested. And if they are more interested in then it means that it's something that is meaningful to them. So there's so much stuff that goes into that, that we know having choice from the student perspective means that they're going to be much more engaged. And if you're just giving the rep all the time, then they're not going to have an opportunity to really connect unless you spend the time talking to them, why they should connect with this one particular tune that you put in front of them. So. And as difficult as it would, would be to say it genuinely, like, if you're not willing to try it and completely foul it up as well, then it's very, very difficult to assume that the students would as well. And I've done many uh, exercises or attempts of improv and just five minutes in gone, nope, didn't work at all. And we just kind of like reevaluate. But at the very least, I can say the students look at you as human and then they're a little more willing to try because you know, I've even had the one or two where they're like, well, it can't be as bad as what Mr. Fair just did. So let's just give this a shot. And then if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. will be it. That's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think showing your students that you are actually a human being who is learning is something that's so valuable and something that I don't think students see all the time. Like the same reason that I think that all these, my first semester that I thought these music education researchers were like, they deserve to be on this ivory tower and I'm not worthy. But in reality, like they're just people who have done research and then Marissa, what you're saying, like Peter Webster just didn't agree with his own stuff 
years later. Like there's a reason that we write about research in past tense once it's published. It's because it gives the author an opportunity to learn and grow and make new discoveries and have these new decisions. And I think not having that opportunity to learn and grow is such a shame as a teacher. I think one of the best things about teaching in higher ed is that I get to continuously be a student and to teach my students effectively to be solid music educators. I have to stay on top of what's happening in classrooms and what trends are there and are the communities that they're going to be going and doing these student teaching experiences doing the same things that I'm telling them is important or are they going to go into the classroom and see something completely different then that's on me to figure out. So that means that I've chosen a career where I get to be curious and a student for the rest of my life. And I am a hundred percent okay with that. <laughs> I was thinking I'm never going to be able to read everything. I was thinking during when we were just first, like at the very beginning during the introduction, how interesting it is that you went from finishing your dissertation to in the same building, being part of the faculty and just that level of turnaround and just the, the the collaborativeness and like the how quickly you have to learn and you can change and mold what you think is just so fascinating because I mean I'm at a high school right now but to put that in like a frame of mind of I have a senior to think what would it look like if two weeks after you got your diploma you came back and did my job is just it's very interesting and I know it's different I know it's different from like a yeah but not really I know but it's cool <laughs> it's really cool so yeah it's been really kind of fun I mean I was lucky in that my last three years I was teaching some class on my own but I think what's what really blew my mind is that I had an a few overbearing administrators that would come in and question absolutely everything I was doing I don't know that you're doing the right thing your kids are behind why are you doing that and then I would have to defend everything and the very first semester I was teaching string skills I finished my syllabus and then I sent it off to the professor because students can't upload their own syllabi fine whatever and he was like, yeah, did you want me to look through it or should I just upload it for you? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'm not used to that level of, I've hired you to do a job. I know that you're capable of doing that job. Go do that job. But that also means that there's some faculty who have the option of writing a syllabus and then doing whatever they want for 16 weeks, which I would never do. And I don't think most people do that either but it's a little crazy to me to go from having to defend so many of my decisions in a classroom to having someone go you're competent you know what you're doing we trust you to make those decisions and it yeah to go from being a student where especially when I was writing my dissertation where everything I did I was having to jump over these silly little hurdles and oh make sure that you take out the extra period and extra space and follow this particular template and then three weeks later, I'm writing a syllabus and no one has to approve it. They're just like, yeah, you do you. And I'm like, you're putting a lot of trust in me. And I got my degree like two days before the semester started. Are we sure? <laughs> but I have my degree and they can't take it back now. So it's fine. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the goal, right? Um, Okay, so just watching our time, we do need to wrap things up a little bit. Um, so if people want to see you present, read materials you have out there, um, find you in any capacity in like not a strange way, but just like find your work. <laughs> yeah. I said it and I was like, people are going to be stalking Liz now. Anyway, 
I mean, I'm fine with it. Uh, my Instagram is mainly photos of my cat. So have fun there that I am at Liz Educator. I think there's an underscore in there somewhere. Uh, I don't social media very often. Um, but emailing me through my university email address at the University of Florida, you can find me through that. And if you're going to be at FNEA, if you're a Florida person, I will be presenting two sessions on Friday, the 14th of January question mark I should know that by now but it's yeah uh one on itinerant teaching and one on special education um making your classroom more inclusive and yeah if you try and find me on social media I will absolutely um send you pictures of my cat will not send you directly but like you will be able to enjoy pictures of my cat and uh my blog post on or my blog posts rather on f flat you can find me through there through the research to practice column which another one should be coming out here at the end of December and hopefully once a month, once I get my life together after the Thanksgiving break of forgetting how to organize a calendar. <laughs> I love it. No, um, thank you so much. And all of this will be linked up in um, the podcast platform and on a flat. So hopefully folks can um, click around and check out all of your stuff, but thank you so much for joining us. And yeah. I'm sorry that no one can speak tonight, but we're nearing the holiday break. So, um, yeah, we appreciate your patience with us. <laughs> Absolutely fine. I am, uh, such a nerd about research. Like I love talking about it. So if you want to just send me an email and, and talk about this, I'm, I'm happy to do more in whatever capacity. Like it just, I get excited to talk about research and I've, I've found my career niche. Like I just get to forever learn and, and talk about it. So thank you for giving me a, a place to nerd out about research.